one of these times, I'm just going to sneak up on him and just goose him in the back. Just, well, that would be hilarious. No, it's great to be with you guys. Uh, like JT said, we, uh, we started a new series last week that we, we were calling Redefined, where we're taking a look at the Sermon on the Mount, and which, was, which would probably be the most famous speech or, or talk or teaching or whatever you want to call it that Jesus ever gave. And, and Jesus, pretty early on in his ministry, he was um, performing miracles in the streets, and we saw people were getting healed and, you know, paralyzed people and sick people and demons were being cast out. And so he's gathered this crowd of people, and he's gathered his disciples together, and he really hasn't said much yet that we have recorded down. He hasn't really said much yet. And so he, he gathers them on this side of this mountain, and, they, and he starts to speak, and he starts off... And I imagine the whole crowd and everybody getting really quiet and like leaning in, like, what is this guy going to say? And he starts off and he says, blessed are the, and I know for me, if I was there, I'd be like, oh, this is going to be good. He's going to talk about how do I be blessed? You know, what's the blessed life look like? And then he goes into the oddest list (laughs) that they probably could have imagined, he starts off like this in Matthew uh, 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Michael uh, talked about these four Beatitudes last weekend. He talked a lot about how they really focus on a relationship with God and and, uh, but the next four, as we're going to see today, that I'm going to really focus on, really talk about how, they, how, um, how we just connect with others, how we're called to relate to others. So no, verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And I wonder if the disciples in the crowd heard this list and they thought, oh no, this guy is a nutcase. You know, I mean, we knew he could do all these cool miracles, but this guy, this guy, this is not, this is not what we would expect to be the blessed people. This is not a blessed list. And yet Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. He was redefining what it looked like to live in the kingdom of God. He was redefining what it looked like to be a follower of God's. Many theologians have commented on these Beatitudes and said that there's kind of a subtle and yet progressive um, order to them. That, that if we look closely, that each seems like each beatitude builds a little bit upon the next and upon the next. That, that you kind of move up um, this uh, uh, idea of moving up a ladder, per se. Some have talked about it as being like rungs of a spiritual character ladder. And while I think that's helpful, I think that could be a little bit off because when I think of a ladder, I think of like, well, that means I have to climb it, right? That's going to take all my effort, right? I'm going to have to go from the first beatitude and work on that one 
and then I'm going to have to work on the next one, and then I'm going to work on the next one. And it's this idea of like, it's all on me. And I don't think that's what Jesus was implying at all. I, I like much more the idea of seeing the Beatitudes as like stepping on an escalator. As like stepping on an escalator. Yes, there is some effort involved. I have to step onto the escalator, but the, the power that moves the escalator up is not me. It comes from an outside source. That God, that God is moving the escalator. He's moving and changing us and shaping us and transforming us more into his character to be kingdom people. And, but it still takes a little bit of our stepping on, but yet we get to, we get to really lean on him. And we, and we should lean on him to change and shape us. So we're going to talk about the second four Beatitudes. And as we're doing that, I think we'll see that there is kind of this progression uh, up the escalator of mercy, purity in heart, peacemaking, and then persecution. But what I want to focus on is that this idea that God's kingdom blessings are meant to overflow to others. That the, the blessings that we receive from God, like that, they're meant to, to overflow into the, our relationships with other people. So let's pray real quick. God, would you just continue to meet with us today? It is so clear in worship that you are present. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at these Beatitudes, that we would um, just receive your um, wisdom in that. We would see your heart in all of them, that we would receive your power and your presence in all of that. Would you open our eyes just a little bit more to understanding you in your kingdom? Amen. Amen. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus talks about this idea later on in Matthew when he tells this parable, the story of kind of the unmerciful servant. If you've never heard the story, it goes something kind of like this. There's a king, and there's a man who, owned, who owes the king a really large sum of money, like 10,000 bags of gold. Like, no way anybody could really pay that back. And so he, he's, he's brought before the king, and he just begs the king for more time. Would you just give me a little bit more time to pay you back? And the king is filled with mercy and uh, willingness to forgive, and he cancels the man's debt. He says, you can just, you just, just go free. Just go free. And this man should have been filled with so much mercy that it overflowed into other people. But instead, immediately, he goes to a second man who owes him money. And not nearly as much money, 100 pieces of silver. And he says to the man, you need to pay me back. And the man says, well, would you just give me some more time? And he says, no way. And he has him thrown in prison. Well, the king hears about it and goes back to the first man and says, you wicked, da 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 I don't know what he says. I think they left that part out of the Bible. <laughs> Can't say those things. But he, but he says, because you have been un unmerciful, then I'm going to hold you accountable for your debt. And, you're, and he was put in prison and tortured basically for the rest of his life. And so God, Jesus is calling us to be merciful. He's calling us to be merciful because we have experienced mercy. The merciful are those who give forgiveness to those that are indebted to them. They help the undeserving. They, they show compassion to the broken and the struggling. They are a second chance kind of people. Jesus says second chance kind of people are my kind of people because God is a second chance kind of God. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century preacher, talked about a merciful person 
as being someone who is blind in one eye and deaf in one ear. And he said, my blind eye and my deaf ear are the best eye and ear I have. And what he meant by that, what he meant by that is that, that we are called to be merciful people because in this world, we are going to hurt each other. We're gonna, things are going to come out of our mouths that we're going to say that are going to be cruel, that we're going to wish we could take back, that are going to have consequences. We're going to do things sometimes to the ones we love the most that cause them pain. And he says, a merciful person can turn their one blind eye and their one deaf ear to that person and look with their good eye and listen with their good ear on Jesus, focusing on, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be merciful to this person over here because I am looking over here at you, and you have been merciful to me. And I, I hearing the words forgive like I have been forgiven. And this plays out. This plays out in our families. This plays out in our marriages, at work. If we allow unmercifulness to exist and fester, it slowly grows. It slowly grows, and it, it breaks up marriages. It destroys business partnerships. It, it makes neighbors build higher fences. Uh, the gift of mercy, because it is a spiritual gift. The gift of mercy is a gift from God. It's the gift of being blind in one eye and deaf in one ear spiritually. Again, not talking about ignoring abuse or ignoring injustice and just letting them go. It's, it's important that we work towards those things and, and we make sure people are safe, but we are commanded to show mercy like we have been shown mercy. Our God, the King of Kings, has forgiven our debt of, of 10,000 bags of gold. And he's just asking us to forgive the debt of others who owe us like 100 pieces of silver. And when we do that, we see that God's kingdom blessings are meant to overflow to others. They're meant to overflow. And now as we move up the escalator, we see that this, that a merciful environment creates a culture where hypocrisy goes to die and purity grows. A merciful environment creates a culture where hypocrisy goes to die and purity grows. Let me explain what I mean by that. When I, when I know that God has extended me this immense amount of mercy, it's this immeasurable, measurable amount of mercy and that he will continue. If I go to him, he will continue to show me mercy. Then I don't have to hide from him. That I don't have to have secrets from him. That I don't have to pretend to be somebody I'm not. I can be authentic. I can be real. I can be struggling. I can be broken. I can be addicted. I can be wherever I am. And I can, I can be real and I don't have to lie about it. And when we surround ourselves with other people who are growing and experiencing mercy too, whether it's in church, I hope it's in this church, in your small group, in your family, and we live in an environment where mercy is extended to other people, then it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay not to be perfect. It creates a safe space where we can be non-hypocritical and we can grow in being pure in heart that there's no reason for hidden agendas or secret motives or manipulating people or situations. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In the, 
In the first century Jewish mindset, who, you know, obviously Jesus, that's what he was living in that culture, and that was his original audience, pure of heart implied an internal cleansing, a cleaning on the inside. And so later in Matthew, Jesus challenges uh, these Pharisees who, who appear to be clean on the outside. He challenges them that they're being hypocrites. He says, you know, you, you've, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup's filthy. And he says the part that matters is the inside, is that it's clean and not dirty and not growing germs and bacteria. That's the part that matters. You know, every morning when I come into work and I kind of get settled in my office, I, uh, for one of the first things I do is I take my old like teacup that I have from the day before that's got like grime all on the inside and it's dirty from yesterday, and I go to the sink and I scrub it clean. I get all those stains out, I get all that stuff out, and, and I spend a few minutes cleaning the inside, and I maybe wipe down the outside. But I don't spend that much time on the outside, because it doesn't matter. Because my health is going to be determined by getting the gunk out of the, the inside, being pure on the inside. And I know what y'all thinking, like, tea, really? You drink tea? Yeah? I know, it's that... I just give off that, you know, like wild mountain man vibe, you know, <laughs> my blue Oxford shirt, right, <laughs> my peach fuzz, you know, on my cheeks. No, I, no, I do. I, I drink tea. This isn't really related. I, um, you know those, you, know, you can like do those DNA tests and figure out where you're from and stuff. So they make you spit in this little cup and then you don't have to, like, it's a little cup. It takes you like 10 hours to build up that much spit. Like, um, you, like, you got to get an IV put it in you, you're like dehydrated. So you take that, send that off, and it turns out I'm 51% British. So that explains it. That's why I like tea. Yeah. I'm 49% foolish, I think, too. And, um, yeah. I haven't figured out where Fooland is in, in Europe. I don't know exactly what that, somewhere on there. Um, but pure in heart. Pure in heart means having a matching private life with your public life. It means that there's a transparency about you, that you're, you're free from ulterior motives or manipulating other people, that you're undividedly devoted to God. Pure in heart people ask themselves, is this decision or thing I'm going to say, is this God's way? Not, can I get away with this? It's a whole different filter to look through. Ivan Turgenev he was a 19th century Russian novelist. He wrote this. He wrote this. He said, oh, I lost it here. He said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. It's terrible. The people that we know of as, as good people who look good on the outside are still broken. They're still unclean. They're still impure without the transforming power of God without the transforming power of God. That's why even David, King David, chosen by God to be the king of Israel, cried out to God in Psalm 51, verse 10. He said, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. You're going to have to create a pure heart in me, God, because it's not there. And I can't do it myself, and I can't just think really pure thoughts and try to be good and try to be good and try to be good. It just isn't working. You have to do something in me. The Beatitude says that the pure in heart will see God. They'll see God. In the old days, really in the time of Jesus and in times before and after that, 
Kings were rarely seen. They mostly lived in seclusion. You know, and this was back before, uh, you know, paparazzi were, you know, telling us everything the royal family is doing, you know, all the time and latest fashions they're wearing and where they're going on vacation for the summer. Kings, royalty were rarely seen. Just their closest family and friends could see them unless, unless, of course, you could manipulate your way in. You could scheme your way into to seeing the king or the queen, to come up with a reason why you needed to speak with them, to, to name drop, you know, to visit the royal family. You know, I, I know Andrew, and he's apparently 51% British, <laughs> supposedly. But, uh, but yeah, but, but it was the impure who got to sneak a peek at the king, and Jesus flips it. He says, it's not the impure you get to see the king, it's the pure who will see the king of kings that we'll get to see God. Jesus is is so smart. He knows. He knows that the condition of our heart, that it plays out in our interaction with other people. Matthew 15, 19, he said this. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. All these sins are against other people. They affect other people in major ways. And where do they all start? In here. They all start in here. One of the most critical places I think we see that the level of our purity in our heart can affect is in our family. It's in our marriages. You know, marriages where one or both partners are struggling with purity of heart, they tend to be filled with lots of little white lies and secrets and manipulations, and over time, it destroys and eats away trust and intimacy. And whereas we have marriages where both partners aren't perfect, but they're growing in purity of heart, they're growing in that direction, there's integrity, there's care, there's, there's selfless love, and trust and intimacy overflows. It's the same is true with parents and kids, and you know, bosses and employees, and in all of our relationships. God's kingdom blessings are meant to overflow to others. Let's keep going. Let's keep going up the escalator. People, pure in heart, grow to become peacemakers for the kingdom of God. People, pure in heart, grow to become peacemakers for the kingdom of God. James uh, writes about this. James writes about this in, in chapter three of his letter, 17. He says this, the wisdom from heaven is first pure and then peace loving. There's something about the wisdom of God that first does something pure in us and then can do something peaceful in us. And I don't understand that. But blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemaking is not the same thing as peacekeeping. It's not the same thing as peacekeeping. Peacekeeping is appeasing. It's shoving things under the rug. It is avoiding conflict. It is being the person in the family who, oh, I can't say that to that person because they'll get offended. And I'm going to go over here and make sure this person's okay because I want to make sure they're not offended and just trying to keep everybody calm. That's peacekeeping. That is not what Jesus is saying is blessed here. He says peacemaking. There's a difference. And, the, and Jesus, when he talks about peacemaking, he's really thinking of the word shalom. 
He's saying shalom makers, basically. Shalom is a word that appears over 250 times in the Bible. And it means, and is often translated peace in English, but it means much more than that. It means much more than that. It means peace, prosperity, success, well-being, safety, welfare, health, deliverance, salvation, completeness. The peace of God, the shalom of God that Jesus is talking about is more than just absence of war between nations or absence of conflict between individuals. It's multidimensional. It's harmonious. It's, it's the kingdom of God being enacted and realizing and coming, God bringing his peace, his plans. Jesus was nicknamed the Prince of Peace, and he says, blessed are the peacemakers because they too will be called children of God. Basically, they too will be little princes and little princesses of, of, of God. That others will recognize the peacemakers in the world as, as being the children of God and notice that there's something different. There's something different about them. So what does what being a peacemaker look like? What does it look like? Well, there's a guy named Rick Love wrote a book um, called Peace Catalyst. Um, I would highly recommend it. It's probably the best book I've ever read on the subject. Rick is known um, for his uh, expertise in Muslim and Christian relationships around the world. And um, he talks a lot in the book about different things. But one of the things I thought was really helpful is he talks about, he identifies these pillars of biblical peacemaking. What are things that we can be doing in our own lives, the really practical things to help be peacemakers when we're in conflict with other people or we see people maybe that we are conflict in our families or that we have influence in, that we can speak lives into. So he gives us a few practical things here. Number one, he says, take responsibility. He says, taking responsibility. Most of us uh, in a conflict can't see past blaming the other person. But in every conflict, there's usually some part we've played that we need to own. Even if the other person has done 95% of the trouble or fault, if there's 5%, we need to own that 5%. We need to take responsibility for it. The funny thing is the other person thinks they only have 5% and you're the 95%, right? But it's amazing. When you, start, when you take responsibility, it's like everything just dials down. It's like the, the, the flames get lower. And, and all of a sudden, you can move into other, other avenues of peacemaking and actually solving some things. Number two, um, lovingly reprove. To reprove means uh, rebuke or reprimand. But to do it lovingly, lovingly allows correction and teaching to happen. It doesn't sweep things under the rug. It names the hurt. It names the sin. But it, it corrects it in a lovingly way. Three is very similar, but probably the hardest one, accepting reproof. It's hard when someone comes to you and corrects you. It's hard to be humble. Our pride gets in the way. But if we want to move towards real healthy reconciliation, we have to be open to receiving that. And four and five are asking forgiveness and forgiving others. Most of us, we want to wait. We just want to wait for things to calm down. And we assume when the other person stops screaming, you know, that, that all is forgiven. Well, that's not true at all, really. I think we all know that. That isn't the case. It's like, that's like, Lava that has just started to cool. So on the surface, it looks hard like rock. 
And I think I can step on it, but my foot goes right through. You know, next week we're having the same conflict, we're having the same argument, same problems because nothing actually got solved. I have three kids, a daughter who's 11, and two boys, uh, six and nine. And my boys, being that age, are, um, well, in their maturity and knowing that I'm their father, uh, they're like, everything potty-related is hilarious right now in our house. (laughs) Everything, all day long. Making songs about stuff, just all the time. And so it is a, a regular thing that we have conflict about that in our house that I get to deal with. And so, uh, like the other day, uh, the boys are playing nice and calmly, peace, peaceful in the house. And all of a sudden, one of them gets up, has this mischievous look on his face, walks over to the other one, sticks his butt right in the other one's face, and just rips one as loud and as hard as he can. And I, this is the house I live in. This is what I got to deal with all the time. And, and so, of course, what happens? There's fighting. There's wrestling, there's yelling. By the time I get there, I'm pulling the second kid off the first kid as he's sitting on his face to return the favor, right? (laughs) And so I send them to their rooms. You need to go calm down. But if that's all I did, that's peacekeeping. That's just waiting for them to, to, their emotions to go down and then ignoring the problem and not actually helping them deal with the problem and come to some resolution. So afterwards, it's, it's coming back together, and it's going through things like this. It's ma- challenging them and lovingly reproving them and asking them to take responsibility for their pardon, which is hilarious because, you know, well, yeah, yeah, it's, it, I don't know, it's just crazy. They're so, they're so funny. It's, it's moving them towards, um, you know, taking responsibility and receiving correction and asking forgiveness. Asking forgiveness. And this is just kind of a side note, but, you know, parents, grandparents, the power of forgiveness is so important with our kids and our grandkids. Modeling that for them. When I mess up, when when I lose my cool or yell too loud or, you know, I do something, for me not to just be like, oh, that's okay, it's no big deal. To, to, Usually my wife lovingly, you know, reproves me. Uh, She's so wise. Uh, To get down on my knees, look my kids in the eye, and say, Dad was wrong. What Dad did was wrong. Would you forgive me? You know, they say the same thing every time. Oh, it's okay, Dad. It's okay, I know you love me. No, what I did was wrong. Would you please forgive me? I mean, talk about powerful. To, be, to have the authority and influence over the lives and to model for them, this is how you resolve things. This is what it looks like. This is how you become peacemaking people as you grow up and finally stop farting in each other's faces. <laughs> Gosh. One day. Is any, please pray for me. Just pray for me. <laughs> pray for my wife. It will end soon, I hope. Um, peace is a gift. It's a blessing from God that we are meant to share. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Shalom Maker, he wants to teach us to be the children of God, to be his sons and daughters, enacting peace in our homes, at work, and in the world to others. That Again, God's kingdom blessings are meant to overflow. They're meant to overflow. Last step up the escalator. 
Kingdom peacemakers discover joy in spite of wearing a target on their backs. Kingdom peacemakers learn that there is joy in spite of persecution. You know, it's no surprise that often it's the peacemakers who end up being persecuted. You know, when you have a battle going on between people and they're down in the trenches shooting at each other, and God calls you, maybe you have influence in their life, or like it's just me and my boy, you know, my boys or whatever, and you choose to be, God, you know, God is calling you to step into that space and to walk into the middle of the battlefield to try to negotiate a truce. It is so much easier for them both sides just to start shooting at you and stop shooting at each other. That we will be shot at by our enemies. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is important, though. This is important. It's, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, and because of him, not because you're being a jerk or you're being mean or hurtful and using the name of Jesus to do it, right? We don't, we don't get to be cruel to people or be un, you know, willing to listen to people or just be harsh with people and say it in the name of Jesus. Jesus isn't blessing that. He's calling us to do it in a loving way, in a respectful way, in a kind way. But he says that we will be blessed. It's a new concept in the history of the church that we would not be persecuted. This idea that in our culture in America in the last couple hundred years, that you know, that we just being Christians, like we wouldn't have to face persecution. That most of the world doesn't think like that way for the history of the world. From the beginning of the church through the Middle Ages, in most countries in the world. Being persecuted is part of the deal you sign up for as a Christian. Now, we might not be you know, living in fear of being imprisoned for our faith or, or anything like that, but, but as a person of peace, if we're a follower of Jesus, we will have targets on our back. I remember a couple months ago um, in Delaware, uh, just down the road, I, I saw this Facebook post that there was a, a grocery store, family-owned grocery store that had gone out of business and the space was for sale, and a church had bought the space. And they were going to remodel it and kind of move in. And I thought, that's awesome. That's great. Like another outpost of the kingdom of God. And then I read the comments. And I was shocked at the comments. Negative after negative after negative comment. People were saying, like, another stupid church? Do we need any more churches? Why can't we get a target? Seriously, that's one of them. Why can't we get a Target? Why can't we get another cool restaurant? Like, and, 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 and I think we know this, we experience this. Like, social media is one of the biggest places, I think, we as Christians in America today face persecution. And, and it has to do, scientists call it the online disinhibition effect. It's like a real thing where apparently on, when we're on social media, we don't feel like the comments that we're making are actually reaching real people, that we can be harsher and crueler and sharper, and it doesn't matter, but we all know it does. 
We know it hurts. We feel it hurts sometimes. Why, why should Christians expect persecution? Why should we expect persecution? Well, Plato wasn't a Christian, but uh, he had a theory that I think applies to this. He had a theory. You may have, if you ever took philosophy. Anybody take philosophy in college? Maybe a couple of you? Four of you? All right, good. I feel better. More than four. That's good. I can see you now. He had this, he had this allegory. It's called Plato's Cave Allegory. I don't know if any of you ever heard of this. So it, I kind of, I'll, I'll try to do it justice, but it's basically this story um, where Plato said, if hypothetically, if there was a group of people and they were since childhood forced to live in a cave and they were imprisoned in this cave and they had never seen really the outside world and they, all day long they looked at the back of the cave wall and all they saw were shadows kind of dancing on the cave wall from the light coming in, but they never really saw real things, just darkness and shadows. And he hypothesized that if one of those people broke free from their chains and they went out into the real world for the first time and they saw trees and mountains and rivers and animals, that they would just be in awe of what the real world was like and that they would feel compassion for their friends still stuck in the cave. And they would go back into the cave and they would try to explain it what life was like in the real world, how wonderful it was. But these people still in the cave would have no paradigm to understanding what they were talking about, that they would actually rise up in hostility and kill the person. That's what he said would happen. And here's why I think that applies to this idea. When you and I come into a relationship with the living God and we encounter Jesus for maybe the first time in our life, everything begins to change. We become kingdom people. The things we care about, the things we experience, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, all that stuff that we get. The blessings of God is like walking out of the cave and seeing the real thing, the way it was meant to be experienced. And when we go back and we try to tell people about that and they can't understand what you're talking about, they have no paradigm for that that there's pushback, that there's resistance, that they think you're a little crazy. You know, you take this faith thing is a little crazy. This Jesus thing is a little crazy. That we should expect pushback. But what happens, what we need to pray for, what we need to pursue is that they would encounter the living God, that their chains would be broken, that they would come into the light. And one thing I've been really challenged and convicted of lately by God is all too often, I wonder, I, th I think, man, if I'm not really ever really experiencing any kind of pushback or any kind of disagreement about this or any kind of even minimal persecution, then I wonder, I wonder if I'm spending a little too much time in the light with all my Christian brothers and sisters and I'm not venturing into the cave often enough to rescue those that are in there. You know, I'll wrap it up with this. One thing I find really interesting uh, is that the very first beatitude and the very last beatitude promise the same thing. We read this one last week, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What is Jesus doing? Ah, oh, he's a smart man. So smart. He's bringing it back around to where he began. He's saying that the blessing of the last 
is no better than the blessing of the first. It doesn't matter where you are at on the escalator. You get the same thing. You get the kingdom of heaven. You get to be a kingdom person, a kingdom people. You get to experience God in that way. And as we grow, move up the ladder, or the escalator, I mean, we become witnesses to others. We become inviters of others to, to take on, a step, to step on as well, to come out of the cave, to, to, to come and come to terms with their poorness of spirit, to mourn their sin, to you know, go through all of them, to, to be meek, to grow in meekness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to experience God's mercy and extend it to others, to become pure in heart, to be peacemakers, and to even be willing to be persecuted for the glory of God. But, but we can hear a talk like this, and we can think of the Beatitudes as a checklist, as a, as a list of, well, I'm doing pretty good in mercy, but I definitely need to work on that peace thing. And I don't think that's what we're supposed to take away from this at all. I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. The good news is that self-improvement is not the answer. A little bit of self-reflection is not a bad thing. But self-improvement is not the answer. Jesus did not come to tell us to start acting better. We should, we should look at the Beatitudes. We should look at the whole Sermon on the Mount and say, even if I tried as hard as I possibly could, there's no way I could reach that standard. There's no way I could do that. So you need to do that in me, God. You need to change me. You need to transform me. The good news is that Jesus is mercy and pure and peace and persecuted on our behalf. The answer to becoming more merciful is not just trying to be more merciful. It's, it's asking God, would you fill me up with your mercy so much I can't even hold it anymore? It, the answer to being pure in heart is not just thinking really good thoughts, think good thoughts, don't, yeah, try that. Yeah, that doesn't work. It's, it's saying, God, you are the purest human being I ever lived. Would you show me what that looks like? Would you create in me a pure heart? It's, it's the answer to peace isn't trying to get everybody to hold hands and sing kumbaya and, you know, it's not. It's turning our eyes towards the Prince of Peace. And the answer to persecution isn't trying to avoid it, but finding joy by being in the company of the one who was persecuted to the point of death on the cross for us. The answer is inviting him more and more into our lives. It's, it's trusting that he will do a work in us, and from there, things will overflow to others. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand up? Why don't we stand up? Hey, I think really clearly, during worship, during the time JT took a minute at the beginning to just kind of wait on the Holy Spirit, that, um, that God wants to do some things tonight. I really do. And I think that most of the time, he, he, he likes it when we sing to him. He loves it when we sing to him. He likes it when we talk about his word. But I think he loves it when we actually let him have space to talk back. And I know that can be a little weird. And you know, we don't want, we're not going to make it weird. But, but you, we just want to give God some space. Um, so we're just going to, if you want to close your eyes for a second just so we're not distracted. And if you want to just kind of play a little bit of something in the background, it'd be great. If you feel comfortable just kind of opening up your hands, you don't have to. There's nothing magical about that. Just to be in a posture of receiving. We're just going to take a, a minute here to just be quiet before the Lord. And just wait. Come Holy Spirit. 
We just ask you to come, Holy Spirit. some of you are starting to experience the Holy Spirit right now. And I don't know if you know what that looks like, but it could be like, feel like a weightiness on you. Some of your heart is like racing. Some of your hands are, are feeling warm or tingly. And I, I, that's, just, that's just God kind of showing up and showing that he's with us. Is anybody here who's feeling kind of like a, a tightness in your chest as we're waiting on the Lord? Anybody? If that's you, I think God just wants to... Uh, Okay, you, yeah, yeah. I think that's God wanting to give you mercy and compassion for people. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. So if that's you, I'm going to encourage you to come forward and get prayer in a second. I had a sense of, um, we were worshiping, I had a sense of a couple things that I think I wanted to work on or heal or show up. Um, dizziness, dizziness and, and things with your bladder. And that's a, that's, those are a little different. Um, but if you have any issues with that, I would encourage you to get prayer in a second. I mean, I just want to invite some of you forward to get prayer. If you just, tonight, you just felt like, hey, I, I do, I want, I want those things. I want to be more merciful. And it seems like I keep trying, <laughs> I keep failing. And he, God wants us to not be strivers, but receivers. So if you want to just receive, you know, you know, gifts of mercy and peace from the Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you forward. And somebody's just going to lay a hand on your shoulder and just pray for you. Why don't you start to make your way forward if, the, if, if you want prayer for anything tonight?